Just One More with Joanna and Daphne, a fitness and nutrition podcast for normal people who want to be more awesome. If you have trouble deciding between Just One More Cupcake and Just One More Kettlebell Swing, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joanna Shaw-Flam. I'm an actor, a comedian, and a normal person. And Daphne is not with us today because we are talking to a special guest. Um, But before we begin, remember to talk to your doctor or medical practitioner before starting any workout or nutrition plan. Uh, as I said, we have a special guest today. Uh, welcome to Just One More, Christy Ashwanden. Hi, Christy. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. Uh, so, Christy, to start out, uh, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, uh, I am a journalist, a science journalist by vocation. I'm also a former elite athlete. Uh, these days, I'm sort of a recreational athlete. I try and get out as much as I can. Um, but I'm also the author of a new book, which is called Good to Go, uh, what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. So this is a topic that's been on my mind quite a bit. Um, But I'm also, I should mention, I'm also the co-host of a new podcast called Emerging Form. And it's all about the creative process. My co-host is a poet, and we talk about creative conundrums. And our most recent episode is about existential angst, which I think every creative (laughs) person has felt. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I'm, not, I'm also a journalist. I've written for dozens and dozens of different publications. Great. Um, and uh, the reason that the specific reason I wanted to talk to you on the show is because I heard you uh, on the fabulous Fresh Air with Terry Gross uh, mm-hmm. talking about your book and, um, and talking about exercise recovery and sort of um, going at the subject of recovery the way that my co-host Daphne and I have often talked about um, common quote unquote wisdom about dieting yeah. and exercise and saying, you know, what does the science really say here? We're doing all these things to our bodies. A lot of us are spending a lot of money. What does mm-hmm. the science actually back up? What uh, might actually be dangerous or be counter to what we're trying to do with these things? Right. Uh, and your book does such a great job of talking about um, the real science, but talking about it in plain language in a way that's interesting to someone like me who is coming at it from a uh, actor, comedian, uh, weekend jogger point of view, right. <laughs> but right. also for someone who's yeah. training more seriously. Uh, so I, I'm really excited to talk about some of these recovery things on the show, uh, especially since it might be bursting some of our bubbles. Listeners, get ready. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> right. And I really, I really did aim to make this book very accessible. So I think it is something. You know, I sent it out. I have this. I got this great blurb from Jesse Diggins, who's an, an Olympian, an Olympic gold medalist skier, and she was like, "Oh, I love this book." It's great. And I wanted to speak it to speak to people like her, but I also wanted to speak to people like, so my agent is a swimmer and, you know, she does this for fitness and for fun. And she said, Oh my God, I learned so much. And mm-hmm. this book is really for everyone. And I really hope that it speaks to, um, you know, weekend warriors, but even just people who are struggling just to get started with exercise. Um, because really, um, so much of what the book talks about is all of this marketing that's targeted at us. And I think that particularly for people who are new, new to sport and new to exercise, you know, there, there's so much misinformation out there and we're just such ripe targets for, um, you know, a bunch of nonsense. I would say. <laughs> of course. Yes. I yeah. definitely a target for nonsense. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you said that, um, you have an athletic background and from your book, it's obvious that it's, uh, I would say that that's a little bit of an understatement. So you can, can you talk about sort of what your history is as an athlete? Sure. So I've been a lifelong runner. 
Um, it's something I started doing in high school. I actually went out for the volleyball team. I'm, I'm relatively tall for, I'm tall for a girl. And so I thought, oh, I'll be good at, at volleyball. It turns out I was terrible. I didn't make, <laughs> I didn't even make the C team, you know, the, the lowest team. But so I went out for cross country because they took everyone. And it turned out that I was actually a very good runner. Um, very soon I was the top runner on the team and it was something that I just fell in love with. So that's something I've done um, all of my life basically. And I, I ran in college. Um, division one, but then I got injured during college. And so while I was redshirting, I started cycling, which I really loved. And so next thing I knew is on the cycling team at my university. Um, I also tried out cross country skiing, which I'd never done. And so became a pretty serious cyclist. And then um, after, after that, I actually decided to pursue cross country skiing at a high level. And that's probably the sport that I did at the highest level. I actually lived over in Europe, um, training and racing over there and I've raced all over North America as well. Uh, and then, so you have this history as an athlete. Is that what led to you becoming a science journalist or was that sort of a, um, a path that came in from another direction and they happened to intersect? Yeah, that's such a good question. I would say that it's a little of both. So um, what's so great about this book is it really combines so many aspects of me as a person, you know, my athleticism, but also my passion for science. And, you know, I have sort of built my, my science journalism career on writing about science for sort of everyday people. And so not doing stuff that's necessarily so technical. Um, so I've done a lot of, of writing about science as it applies to exercise and to sport, um, but also a lot of writing about health and particularly personal health and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that my interest in sport sort of made me interested in, in science. But I actually, in high school, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And part of this was just sort of a failure of imagination because, <laughs> you know, when, when you're that age, you know, as a teenager, I sort of knew that if you were into science, you could be a doctor or maybe a scientist. And since I had a really great anatomy and physiology teacher um, in class, I thought, oh, yeah, medicine would be great. But then I realized that being a doctor means you're hanging out in hospitals and around sick people all the time, which didn't seem like what I really wanted to do. I like being outside <laughs> and whatnot. And so um, in college, I, I decided I wanted to be a scientist. And I, I actually did ecology field work. And so I was doing a lot of work in the outdoors. And that felt like a really good combination and something I would enjoy. Um, but eventually, I realized that I liked thinking about science and talking about science and writing about science a lot more than I enjoyed actually doing science, which can be very tedious and difficult. And so that's sort of how I, I started on this path. And then this book in particular is really just a combination of so many different aspects of things that I'm interested in, you know, both the sport, but also science. And, and you know, this is a book that's about exercise recovery and about the marketing around it, but it's also sort of at its most basic level, a book about science and the scientific method and, and how it works and cases, you know, where it doesn't work or where it's, you know, I think a common theme and a common thread here is that science is often used as a marketing tool. And so um, science has a lot of uncertainty baked into it. That's a part of the process. And that doesn't mean that it's not working but it's just that, you know, all of our answers are sort of preliminary. You have to always be open to new evidence. Um, but what happens is these marketers swoop in and they take little shreds of evidence and they they sort of turn them into gospel, which is, that's not how science works. And so I hope that the book sort of does something to explain that and to help people understand that science is the most powerful tool that we have for understanding the world, but it also creates answers that are sort of preliminary 
and that aren't always you know completely certain and we need to understand that and we need we need to sort of embrace that because if we think of science as this magic wand that turns everything it touches into truth then that really makes us very vulnerable to these marketers who are going to overstate the evidence and overstate the science to sell us things i think that's such a, an important point for those of us who are sort of like lay people who are yeah. um, in some ways just being acted upon by marketers but also by the the way science is um uh, per, you know, communicated to average people. You know, I'm not reading yeah. journals. I'm reading the headline on the local news while I'm making dinner, or the thing in the magazine that says blueberries will cure your cancer, or you know, right. whatever it is. <laughs> and um, you know, I'm really interested in having the tool, some of the tools to try to figure out like what you know, what of this should I listen to? What should I let go? Um, and one of the things I thought about reading your book is that you point out that science really is all about asking sort of what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this idea? What's missing from this picture? What aren't we getting at with the information we have? And what kind of experiments and testing can we do to get that information? Yeah. Whereas the wellness world is um, coming at things like what's next? What's new? What might work? What's possible? Um, and and those two things, uh, one is sort of a uh, relentless optimism and, and the other one is sort of relentless pessimism and yeah. ideally they both work together but I think for most of us who are sort of average Joes or Josephines uh, we never get past the relentless optimism and then sometimes when we hear this the pessimism of science we're like oh, well that's just like a bummer like right. you know that doesn't offer me solutions that just tells yeah. me what won't work uh, yeah. so it feels harder to access um, yeah that's right that's right and I think that um, I think that most people don't realize how hard it is to actually answer questions with a lot of certainty, you know, even simple questions. So the first chapter of the book is about beer and running. You know, I started with the most important <laughs> questions first. Right, exactly. You know, seemingly very simple question, right, which is, you know, if I go for a hard run, and so the scenario I'm sort of looking at is you do a race and, you know, so many races now have a beer tent and, you know, look, me and my friends like to have a refreshing, you know, beer after a race. We're talking one beer, not 10. Right. Um, but, you know, I started to, to wonder, okay, this is, you know, alcohol is a little bit like coffee. It's like a little bit mind altering. It's very pleasant. And so we sort of suspect that it must be bad for us, even as we sort of secretly hope that it's good for us. <laughs> and so, right. yeah, I just wanted to know, okay, if I have the beer, is it going to harm my recovery? Like, am I going to feel it? later like are the benefits sort of being outweighed by you know are there are there even harms like maybe there aren't maybe uh, maybe beer is an ideal recovery drink it has some carbs it's got some minerals and in fact there's even some marketing now there are recovery beers and they're mostly non-alcoholic but you know if you're drinking a lighter beer that's not so different anyway so we set up the study to, to try and answer that and it turned out that it was a really hard question to answer and you know the first the first problem that you run into is just a measurement problem and that is, what do we mean by recovery and how are we going to measure it in the study? And like, what do I really care about here? Because one of the issues that comes up again and again, and this is something that I saw across all the kinds of different studies that I was finding that were being used to promote different products or different recovery modalities, is that they would be measuring things and they could find measurable differences. But are those differences and are those things they're measuring the things we care about and do they matter in real life? And is this, you know, just because you found something, what does that mean? And so... You know, this was something that happened again and again and again. And so many of the things that are being marketed to us with science are based on things where, you know, the study design may have been it may have set up to sort of guarantee success for the product. And it may be, you know, showing these, you know, amazing improvements in something that actually has no relevance to your life or the things that matter to you. 
Right. Yeah. Um, when we talk about recovery, uh, I think um, there's this sort of broad umbrella term that actually means a few different things. And your book is yeah. really great about talking about what those different things are. Um, you you talk in the book about how when you were younger, recovery from exercise basically just meant like, you know, sort of shaking it out after practice and going right. home. Uh, and yeah. I had that experience too. You know, I uh, danced all through my younger days and I ran track poorly in high school. Uh, and, you know, it was sort of a similar thing. We'd like go out, we'd like kind of warm up, we'd do whatever our workout was for the day. Uh, and then, you know, we'd do a series of stretches and uh, that was kind of it. And now if you go to, especially, I feel like running stores are a great place to see this. There's a whole yeah. wall of uh, uh, recovery and fueling uh, things that kind of look like goo or candy or right? some sort of powder or cream. And then, you know, there are things that you stick your legs in that squeeze you. And, you know, someone over here, like uh, Daphne, my co-host, is really into uh, infrared saunas. I'm like, what's that about? Uh, there's, <laughs> we talk about foam rolling all the time on the show. Um, and so recovery has really turned into its own industry that is in some ways presenting itself as um, uh, a place where you should spend as much time as you spend on your workouts or your training, um, which kind of dovetails perfectly into this um, world of self-care that has become yeah. sort of pushed to the forefront. And caring for yourself is obviously great. Um, it's also something that can be marketed and sold. Uh, right. And so, so what recovery is has really changed in the last, you know, 30 years and become an industry unto itself, which makes it suspect, I think. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I talk in the book about how it's gone from being a, a noun to a verb. So, you know, back when I was a more serious athlete, it was something, it was a state of being that you sort of waited to attain. And it was like all the things you weren't doing. And now it's become this verb. It's something you do where people, I mean, people would actually tell me, I have to go do my recovery. And, you know, I thought, what do your recovery? What do you, what do you mean do? Like, you're supposed to like kick back with a book or something. You know, this isn't something that you're actively pursuing. And in the book I talk about, there's one anecdote that really, um, uh, comes out to me, which is about this guy who's basically spending more time doing these recovery things and he is training, you know, it's really come to that. And so much of this um, really trades on this FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out and this idea that there's one weird trick that we're, you know, we're sort of one weird trick away from this ideal, you know, version of ourselves. And mm -hmm. that if we're not doing those weird things, we're missing out and that we're not our best selves. And there's really this anxiety, I think, that's created by all this marketing. And it's um, very similar to what exists in the world of diet, which is, um, you know, uh, another guest we've had on the show, Jenna Hollenstein, talks about uh, magical thinking uh, and this idea that um, uh, there's there's got to be one magic thing. And if we can just figure out what that magic thing is, we'll yes. get whatever it is we want. And the top level of that might be um, great athletic performance or losing weight. But the actual underlayer of that is like happiness and fulfillment. That's <laughs> um, right. Yeah. And uh, because, <laughs> spoiler alert, nothing that you can buy is going to uh, give you happiness and fulfillment on its own. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a great way to keep uh, people looking for the next big thing because yeah. it sort of is inherently going to fail. Uh, and I, I was so interested to hear you read about sort of a similar way of talking about doing recovery, that, that there's yeah. somewhere out there, there's a magical thing that's going to get me that extra thing, uh, extra bonus energy or 
extra um, leg up on my opponents or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of anxiety that like there's something else that your opponent is doing that you're not and that that's what's giving them the edge. And there's this real fear. Um, I, I didn't put this in the book, but um, one of the people I spoke to uh, works with an NBA team, and he said he had put an incredible amount of energy into trying to convince them not to, they were going to go and spend like tens of thousands of dollars on this cryotherapy chamber thing, which, yeah, there's really no good evidence that this is helpful for recovery. But the problem was that all these other teams were getting it. And so they thought, oh my God, we have to have this because everyone's got them. And he said, you know, this is such a poor use of that money. Like there are so many better uses that we could put that money to, but they really felt like like, you know, they had to have it because everyone else was. And I think there is this sort of weird arms race like that. And it's self-perpetuating, too, because it sort of keeps people unhappy and it keeps people feeling like they're never, they can never reach the state of, like, being okay and doing the things they're supposed to do. And w one of the conclusions I sort of reached um, through all this research, and I, I have to tell you, I read hundreds, probably close to a thousand research papers while reporting this book. I, I interviewed over 250 people. So I really went wide and deep. Um, and one of the conclusions that I reached is that so much of the stuff that's being marketed for recovery are just like things to do while you're waiting for recovery to happen. So like your body's got this, okay? You don't actually need external help, but like we don't like, like we're just at a moment right now, right? Where we don't like doing nothing, mm -hmm. where we get really anxious if we feel like we're doing, like we're not good at relaxing, right? Which at its most basic level, that's what recovery is. It's like rest and relaxation, like literally, but we don't like to do that. And it doesn't feel like, proactive, right? And so everyone wants something to do. And so, so many of us would rather be doing something than doing nothing. When in fact, like doing nothing is really probably the ideal state. And there are so many of these things that just felt like something to give people a sense of agency. And that's become really important. And I don't want to completely poo-poo that because, you know, I think that if a sense of agency like that is helpful to you, I think that that's okay. I mean, I'm definitely not at all pro like people wasting their money on ineffective things or getting suckered or anything like that. And and, and I don't think that people should be, you know, spending, you know, becoming stressed out about things that aren't important. On the other hand, there are a lot of, uh, of these so-called modalities that I think can be very helpful just because they give you a way of like having a ritualized way of, of resting and relaxing. So for instance, um, there are these, I call them squeezy pants, but they're compression, they're pneumatic compression pants. You, know, you, you flip a switch, they're, they're very expensive, but you can go to like one of these recovery gyms and use them for a smaller fee. They feel really nice. And there's all these claims that are made about them that they're flushing lactic acid and doing all these things, which, like, look, you don't need to flush lactic acid. Lactic acid um, is not what makes you sore. It's also uh, cleared very quickly from your muscles on your, you know, your own. So you don't, by the time you're using one of these products, like the lactic acid is probably already gone. So the pneumatic compression boots, yeah, they're not clearing lactic acid. They're not doing a lot of these things that they're said to do. But what they are doing is making you feel really good. And they're giving you an opportunity to like sit back with your legs up for 30 minutes or whatever, like feeling good. And like that, that is recovery. That's a good way to do it. You don't actually need that stuff to do it. But if, if doing that helps you feel better and it feels good to you and it's relaxing, um, then fine. Like I'm totally for that. You know, I'm not necessarily for you spending a lot of money on something like that. And if, if it turns out that then you have to get in the car and drive somewhere far away to go to the gym to use this and you're spending all this time and energy, like then that probably becomes counterproductive. But there are a lot of things like that, you know, that are really just ritualized way, ways of ritualizing uh, rest that I think can be helpful. And that aspect of it is fine. 
it just, you know, you want to be thoughtful about it and not be wasting money or making it into, you know, its own sense of stress. Right. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the most common, most talked about, um, mm-hmm. reco- I call them recovery tropes, but I guess it's more about oh, like recovery that, modalities yeah. or yeah. sort of areas of recovery. Um, one that's a big one is hydrating. Uh, we're, yes. you know, there's so much messaging about how much water we should be drinking, when we should be drinking the water. Should we be drinking something that isn't water that's somehow more than water? Um, so how much do we actually need to be drinking and of what? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. And so it's so interesting. This is uh, an area that was so fascinating to me because what's ended up happening is we've sort of been convinced that like, we can't trust our bodies to get this. Like our bodies have this really sophisticated way of like, um, monitoring and sort of regulating our level of hydration. It's called thirst. So like, you know, <laughs> our ancestors, and I, I'm not big on the whole evolutionary biology explanations of things, but you know, my grandparents drank when they were thirsty and they did, they did fine. Like our bodies are actually very adaptable. They're capable of, of adapting to varying conditions and things like this. And so when you're thirsty, that's a sign that you need to drink. And it is true that when you're exercising, sometimes you can sort of um, forget to to think about some of these signals and things like this. But what's happened is we have these marketers that have swooped in and told us, okay, you can no longer trust your thirst. If you, by the time you're thirsty, it's too late. Well, that is actually not only uh, not true; it can be a very dangerous idea. Um, while I was researching the book, I looked long and hard. I was unable to find a single documented case of someone dying of dehydration during a marathon or on a sports field. But what I did find is at least five people who have died of overhydration wow. that they, they accomplished during a marathon. So this is like, this is not just bad advice. It can be deadly. And so what's happening here is people are, are believing that they need to drink a certain amount or they need to drink on a schedule. And that's just nonsense. We don't need that. Um, the other sort of fallacy here is this, this idea that we need to drink electrolytes, that the sports drinks are really important because they have electrolytes. Well, electrolytes is just the scientific name for salts. And we get <laughs> these things in our food all the time. Um, most of us get plenty of that. And you can you can really just drink some water and eat a normal meal. You don't need to put electrolytes into a drink. You can get them from food. That's perfectly fine. Um, so really, the, the key here is very simple. Drink to thirst. I mean, it is good to pay attention. Um, when you're exercising and think about, are you thirsty? And if you are doing something like a marathon and it's a hot day, you're probably going to need, you know, you can anticipate that you'll be thirsty. And so it's worth thinking about, you know, making sure that you have access and whatnot. Um, but what you shouldn't do is you should never force yourself to drink if you're not feeling thirsty. And if that water or that drink isn't tasting, you know, we've all sort of had this experience where it's a really hot day and you're really thirsty. And you have that glass of water and it tastes so good. Like that's yes. your body telling you, yes, I need this. You know, on the other hand, if you're drinking the water and it's like, oh, it doesn't, you know, you don't, you're sort of drinking out of a sense of obligation. That's when it's time to stop. And it's really, it can be dangerous. Like I said, people are actually dying of this. And here I think it's really important to realize that what's happening is that we're being told that we can't trust our bodies and we can't trust like, yeah, I talk about in the, the book that I go running with my dog all the time. And like, I don't have some scientist looking over her shoulder and saying, okay, it's time, you know, and I couldn't even force her to drink if I wanted to. And she does fine. I, I do make sure that she has access to water at reasonable mm-hmm. intervals. And sometimes she doesn't drink at all. Sometimes, you know, she'll drink more. Oftentimes after a run, we'll come home and she then goes to her water dish and drinks. But like this idea that it's just like this thing where we need a scientist right there giving us the schedule and this exact amount is just, it's just nonsense. Our bodies are able to adjust. And in fact, um, we're very capable of being able to exercise without drinking so much. You know, we're able to become very slightly, I wouldn't even call it dehydrated, but we're, we're able to cope with some fluid loss during exercise and that's just fine. Um, it's, yeah. 
that's one reason that you're peeing less. If you're, if you're exercising, you're not going to be peeing as much as if you're just sitting there. Um, your body's holding on to those fluids. I think so many of us want to skip the step of paying attention to what we feel. Um, And and part of that is that we've been told for our entire lives that we don't, that we can't trust. Like you said, we can't trust our bodies, whether it comes to, we can't trust our hunger. um, We can't uh, trust whether or not we need to move our bodies. um, Mm. And, and I think water, you know, hydrating is another one of those things. Um, And since so many of us grow up with this idea that we don't know what's best for us, our bodies don't know what's best for us. Um, then we look for, well, who does? Uh, and we say, oh, these, uh, companies are ready to tell me, or these scientists are ready to tell me. Um, and what is actually, um, harder because it is not sort of handed to us by somebody else as a program is just learning to, like you said, stop and think, am I thirsty right now? Uh, Uh, so many people I know have either water bottles that have sort of marking off their, you know, <laughs> daily fluid or, or alarms on their phones, reminding them to drink water. And if you're learning, if you're trying to learn to be more intuitive about it, it might actually be more helpful to ha- to set those same alarms for a little while, but have it just say like, are you thirsty? You know, just exactly. a reminder to like check in with yourself. Um, because that's the thing so many of us need in so many areas is just to relearn how to stop and listen to how we feel um, rather than going out and buying the next big water drinking program. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's just ludicrous. I mean, this idea that you need to have X amount, you know, often it's said to be eight glasses of water a day. Like, this is nonsense. There's no, we actually uh, don't have the science on that. It's variable. You know, it's going to depend on conditions, what you're doing and all of that. Um, but it's also, I mean, I think the other important thing to understand is that our bodies are very, very capable. And I think one of the messages that's really been marketed out there is that we sort of live in this constant, like very precarious state and that, you know, if anything gets off balance, even a tiny bit, you're just going to be, you know, everything's going to go to crap, but you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll not, you won't be able to perform. You'll feel terrible. You might get sick, et cetera. And it's like, that's not at all true. And so, you know, people tend to focus on these things that aren't that important. And then meanwhile, they're like ignoring the basics. Mm-hmm. Well, and tied in with what you said about hydration, I think there's a similar message about like refueling in your book about sort of the, yeah. the eating involved in exercise, um, yeah. which is that at least the way that I read your book is basically like eat like a person, like right. <laughs> after yeah. you exercise, like at some point when you're hungry, eat a meal that is like relatively balanced between your like protein and your carbohydrates and like get some vegetables. And if you do those things, you don't need to be eating like a weird mush made out of powders or like right. eating within five seconds of finishing your last push up or whatever it is right. um, yeah. that, that the eating is also not nearly as restrictive and specific as uh, some of the information out there would claim that it is. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I think we've been sort of told that like um, exercise creates this extraordinary state of being with like really special nutritional needs. And I was like, no, actually our bodies are, are like meant to, to exercise. Like the thing that is extraordinary is like our, our modern state of like being sedentary. And so mm-hmm. it's probably the sedentary state that, that, you know, changes our nutritional requirements, but like exercise, like we're actually, we're, our bodies are, are, you know, meant to do that. And so uh, we don't need special foods. We don't need, it goes back to the same thing as sort of the, the fluids. It's like, eat when you're hungry, eat the sorts of things, you know, you will actually notice if, if you need electrolytes, you may have a hankering for a salty snack, right? Like we I think we all sort of have these cravings and whatever. So learning to really listen to your body 
and, you know, have a sense of, am I hungry? Am I full? What, what do I need? Um, but we've been told that there's this really important recovery window. You have to eat something right away, immediately following exercise. Well, it turns out, you know, there was some science that looked like it might be saying that initially, but researchers did more research and more studies. They realized that, you know, it just, they had sort of been misled by some of the study designs, and it turned out that it was the nutrition itself rather than the timing of it that was important. So, yeah, uh, protein is important if you're exercising, um, but you don't have to have it immediately following uh, your exercise. Now, on the other hand, if you exercise and you're hungry, like that might be a good time to have a snack, or maybe it's like time for a meal or you're having a meal, and that's perfectly fine too. But this anxiety of feeling like, oh my God, there's this perfect way of doing this that I need to do right now. And that's where the, the products swoop in and they're trying to convince you that you need this shake or this bar or things like that. And if those things are convenient for you, like that's fine. Um, you may be better off with just some real food. Um, one danger, I think, for a lot of people who are exercising sort of for health and for fitness is that you get into a situation where you go and you burn 300 calories uh, in a workout and then you go, you take this 500 calorie uh, protein shake and then you go and you eat your normal meals. And so all of a sudden something you're doing, you know, in hopes of sort of burning some, some calories too, you're, you're sort of more than making up for <laughs> in the recovery foods. Right. Uh, one of the um, sort of wider things that I think I'm going to take from the book in terms of being um, how to be skeptical when I'm thinking about recovery modalities that are being, yeah. you know, offered or sold is uh, anything that talks about reducing inflammation. It seemed like yes. as you were doing your research, that sort of became a buzzword. If it talked about reducing inflammation or blood flow, that was a place to be really, um, really critical. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting um, and sort of uh, counter to a lot of what we've talked about on the show and what is talked about in general is about reducing inflammation. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot or we hear a lot about reduce inflammation. You want to reduce inflammation. Inflammation is bad. You want to reduce it with what you eat and how you exercise and what you drink and all those things. Um, but it seems from your book that um, there's a fair amount of evidence that inflammation is actually really important to um, building muscle um, and, you know, making adaptations that we make you know, Daphne always says uh, our bodies make fitness gains during recovery. And what yeah. is that? It's the body repairing itself from being inflamed. Uh, so why should we be suspicious of claims about reducing inflammation? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, we think of inflammation as being this, this bad thing. Like you said, that's something there's all these things that are supposed to reduce it. But it turns out that that inflammation is basically part of your body's healing process. And so inflammation is part of how your body gets fitter, faster, stronger in response to exercise. And so you actually want that process to proceed. If you're tamping it down or reducing it, you may reduce the benefits that you get. And in fact, there's research showing that when you do things that reduce inflammation, you, you make fewer gains. So we're talking here about like uh, damage to muscles where you're trying to get the muscle stronger or bigger and things like this. So inflammation, I think it's helpful to think of it as just like part of the healing process. And so you want your body to heal. And you want those inflammatory um, agents to come in there and do their jobs, which is to repair the damage that you've done with the exercise. And so it's actually not a good idea to reduce inflammation. You want that inflammation to proceed. You, know, you don't necessarily want to be going around, you know, if you've sprained your ankle, say, and it's your ankle swoll swollen up to the size of a football or something, that may not be pleasant. And so there may be instances where you want to do a little bit of reduction. But in general, um, inflammation seems to be really not only helpful, but essential and an important part of the process. And so there's even some thinking here now. Um, so things like ibuprofen 
anti-inflammatory uh, painkillers. So these are really good for dealing with pain. And if you have an injury or something that's really painful, I would not tell someone not to take it to address the pain if it's keeping you up at night and whatever, like it's very good for that. But um, there's sort of been in fashion for a long time for athletes to take this stuff prophylactically. So the idea is like, I'm going to go do this hard workout or I'm going for a hard run and I know I'm going to be sore and it's going to hurt. And so I'm going to take this stuff before maybe even some ultra runners that I've talked to even take it during an event. And so they're, they're thinking that they're reducing this inflammation and they're, they're going to prevent pain and they're going to feel better. Well, it turns out that none of that's happening. And in fact, what it's just doing is, is causing harm. And in fact, there's some evidence even now that these anti-inflammatory drugs can um, sort of slow the healing process for some orthopedic injuries and things like this. So this is something to talk to your doctor about before you like make decisions and all of that. But I think that the takeaway here is that you really shouldn't just be popping these things like they're candy. You should really be taking them with a purpose. And that purpose should be reducing pain that you already have, not in anticipation of pain that you might have. That's a really bad idea. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to quickly talk about two um, recovery modalities we've talked about a lot on the show. Uh, one is foam rolling. It seems uh-huh. from your book, like uh, generally foam rolling, it's like, yeah, jury's still out, might might be possibly helpful, but uh, yeah. definitely not decisive yet. Is that sort of where you'd put foam yeah, rolling? Yeah, you just, you just put it in a nutshell. That's exactly right. I, I, this is probably the number one thing I get asked about. Um, I just got back from book tour. People are always asking about this. And the thing that I like to say is that if you, if you are a foam roller, if you feel like it helps you, if, if you're someone, I mean, I've had people tell me sort of like, you'll take that foam roller, you know, away from me over my dead body. <laughs> like, if that's you, then go ahead. Like, I did not find any convincing evidence that it's terrible or that it's not helpful. On the other hand, there's not convincing evidence that it is helpful. It's really, you know, it's early days and there's a lot of research being done on this right now. So I think that in five years, we'll know a lot more. Right now, we don't know. So I think if it's not something that appeals to you, if you don't like it, personally, I think it hurts and it doesn't seem to really help me. And so I don't do it. And I don't think that anyone should feel obligated to do it. On the other hand, if it's something that helps you. And this goes back also, I... I do think that there's no doubt that it does give people this sense of agency and the sense that they're doing something. And it's sort of a post-exercise ritual that helps someone sort of relax a little bit. You know, if it feels relaxing, you know, it may not, it may be, um, if it's causing its own stress because it's painful, then maybe it's something worth thinking twice about. Um, But I don't think that it's something that we're really sure about at this point. And the other one, Daphne's going to be so mad that I brought this up. (laughs) but you talk about infrared saunas and she Um, loves them. But from the book, it seems pretty clear that like they're kind of not really doing anything. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what they are doing. And this is beneficial. I mean, they're pleasant. They make you feel good. And if you enjoy sitting in the sauna, like absolutely. I I don't want to take that away from anyone. And I think, I think this is another important takeaway from the book, which is that so many of the things that are being marketed yeah, they're being marketed with this science. And in many cases, like with the infrared, it's sort of a pseudoscience, you know, this idea that there's something really magical about infrared radiation, which is just a form of heat. And so basically, you know, I tried out the infrared saunas, it's just sort of like a a little bit cooler sauna. And if you like that, fine, like it's very pleasant. Um, But it's, it's sort of the, the, the fact that it's helping you relax and making you feel good. That's how it's working. It's not through some magical, you know, thing that's happening with the radiation. It's because you're relaxing. And so go ahead and do it. If you enjoy the infrared sauna, do it, but just know that it's not, there's nothing special about the infrared that's, you know, going above and beyond what you would get from a regular sauna or some other form of relaxation that you might do. Yeah. So do it if you like it, but don't feel compelled uh, if it's not your thing. 
Exactly, exactly. And I think that yeah. that's sort of the takeaway in a lot of these things, really. There were two things that you said um, that seemed to really work, and people uh, don't like them because they are uh, not sort of fancy or purchasable or, uh, you know, and that is reducing stress and sleep. Yes. Uh, you call sleep the best recovery tool known to science, which That's I right. definitely agree with as a huge yeah. sleep fan. But it seems yeah. like the science is there, too. Oh, it really is. I mean, there's nothing you can do that's more potent than that. I mean, really, it's like sleep is the number one, number two, and number three, and number four, <laughs> like nothing else. And one of my one of my talks, a uh, guy raised his hand and he said, okay, so if you can't sleep, what's the next best thing? I said, no, no, wait, wait, you don't understand. Like, there is no next best. Like, if you're not sleeping well, and you're not getting sufficient rest, like, nothing else you can do, like, really matters. It's almost like, sleep is the cake and everything else is icing. And if you're trying to like, you can't ice, but there's no cake there. Right. <laughs> you know, there's nothing to put it on. And so you really, it really, and I think one of the important concepts here is that it comes down to prioritizing. Like it's just, it needs to be something that is non-negotiable for you. It is a part of your life. It is as important as your workout, probably more so because if you haven't gotten sufficient sleep, then you're not going to be benefiting um, you know, sufficiently from your workout. You're not going to be coming back. You're basically um, when you're sleep deprived, then exercise just becomes another stress on your body that you can't recover from. And that's another important concept is that you can only benefit from the exercise that you can recover from. And so anything that you go beyond that is not helping you. And so if you want to be able to train more, you need to be able to recover more too. And that means sleep. It means good uh, nutrition. But this stress aspect is another one that I think people really dismiss and they don't pay sufficient attention to. And so the idea here is that yeah, to your body, stress is stress, whether it's coming from exercise or it's coming from the things we just normally call stress, you know, problems at work or at home or whatever it is that's stressing you out. And so any good recovery plan needs to address that kind of stress. And you need to find a way to cope with it, to reduce it, to manage the stress. We can't completely eliminate stress from our lives, and that's okay. But finding a way to manage it, finding a way to, you know, have some time every day where you're checking out from that and you are giving yourself a rest and a break. It's really important. And that's, I think, one place where some of those things like the infrared sauna or for me, uh, I've had a similar experience with acupuncture where yeah. maybe the clear science isn't there that it's doing something, you know, physiologically to our bodies. But if that's what allows you to take that time to de-stress and to relax, um, then, then that's a good way to do that. You don't need to do it that way. You can kick back with a book or just, you know, go to bed earlier or any of yeah. those things. Um, but if those are sort of the hook that allows you to um, make that time for yourself, then it seems like there's a benefit there because Absolutely. of reducing the Absolutely. stress. Absolutely. Yeah. I, well said. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, well, there's so much more in your book. I think anyone who's interested in uh, the world of exercise and the world of, um, you know, competing in sports will find it super interesting. It's really accessible. I am not really a science person, yeah. uh, and I was totally on board. Uh, but if people want to find the book, where should they go? It's called Good to Go. Yeah, it's called Good to Go. Um, the best way is to go, I have a website, goodtogobook.com, um, that tells a little bit about the book, but there's also links to, to buy it from any possible place, both you know, the major online retailers, but also you can find a link to order it from your local bookstore as well. Great. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. And if people want to find you on the internet, because you have so much, you know, writing and your podcast beyond yeah. just the book, if people want to find you, where should they look for you? Yeah, so it's christyashwanden.com, which I know is a mouthful, but maybe you'll put that in the show I'll notes. link to it, yeah. 
Um, but even just Googling uh, Christy Ashwanden and good to go, you'll, you should be able to find me. And the podcast is Emerging Form, and that's emergingform.com. It's found in all the places you get your podcasts. Um, yeah. Wherever you're getting this podcast, you can that's probably right. find it yeah, there. Exactly. Uh, uh, great. Well, Christy Ashwanden, thank you so much for talking about your book, Good to Go. Uh, we all have some... Uh, things to think about with recovery yeah. and maybe some subscriptions that we get to cancel and use that money for something else. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Sounds, sounds great. Thanks. Thanks. So great to be here. Thanks for listening to Just One More with Joanna and Daphne. Our show is hosted by Daphne Yang and me, Joanna Shawflam. We're produced and edited by me. Our theme music is by Hannah vs. The Many, who you can hear at hannahvsthemany.com. We'll be back next week. You can make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to Just One More on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. For show notes, help subscribing, and to become a patron, you can go to our website, justonemorepodcast.com. Let us know what you think. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Just One More Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Just One More Podcast, or you can email us at info at Just One More Podcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.